0: So, we talk a lot in Buddhist practice about liberation and freedom. And it depends some on who you talk to, how it gets defined, or what it is that happens when you are enlightened, free, awakened, you can choose your word. I've come to land mostly um, in the realm, in the school of thinking that says that there are moments of awakening that come for people. One definition of the awakened mind is the mind that has absolutely no greed, no hatred, and no delusion in it. So you can imagine what that might be like, and most of us have had tastes of it, if not completely without greed, hatred, or delusion, at least less. So you go, oh, that's what it might be like. You know, to have a moment like that. And the understanding is, those of us who are interested in that notion of freedom, is that maybe you have a moment where there's no greed or hatred or delusion, and then you know, you're back to being you again, and there's lots of greed and lots of aversion and a fair amount of delusion, and then maybe somewhere along the line there's another moment, and then hopefully if you're practicing, and paying attention, and kind of going deeper and deeper, those moments begin to come closer and closer together. And we've talked in here in this group on the evenings when I've been here, this late this spring and early summer, a lot about um, waking up and the different steps along the way. And the last time I was here, a few weeks ago, Um, we talked about seeing things as they really are, which is on this list of transcendental dependent origination. Don't worry about the list. But it's a list that really starts with that place where we're all caught in our suffering and then gradually what does it take to wake up? So one of the other passages that often comes to my mind about waking up is actually in the sutta on loving kindness. And I think I'm going to read the whole sutta to you. Some of you maybe know it. Um, And I'll point out the passage, It's, it's at the very end. So the Buddha says, this is what should be done not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. Okay, so here's the passage. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So that's a pretty remarkable I recommend it to you, I recommend that you memorize it if you haven't, it's a wonderful thing to carry around in your pocket. And it's very much a sutta about the stance of mind that is the awakened mind. And it's about what's needed for the training of that mind. So it actually starts, this is what should be done. And I'm always a little startled by that. It's sort of like, you know, just do it. This is what should be done. And it's not. It's a strong kind of command, you know. That it's what needs to be done. And it points out then, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. And that's actually one of my favorite pieces because it it reminds me that goodness is a skill. Somehow, most of us think that we just ought to be good, right? You know? where we were raised, that you were supposed to be good, you were a good child and a good parent and a good wife and a good husband and all those things. But this kind of reminds us that maybe goodness isn't innate. Maybe this is something that you actually have to, to learn and, and to practice and to train in. And so it's a path of peace, you know, and um, when, we, when we go on a, a path, you know, the first time you walk it, you know, you're on a trail, you're up in Big Basin or someplace like that, the first time you walk a trail, you really have to pay attention, right? You don't know the trail, you don't really know where you're going, you don't know where all the turns are. You don't know where there's trees that have fallen over the way. But after a time, if you keep walk, walking that path, if you really train on that path, after a while you know it, right? And you know where the difficult places are, and you know where you really have to pay attention. So it points out a number of things, you know. It points out that um, it says that you have to be able and Upright, you know, and in the sense is, it takes strength to do this and ability. It's not anything that it's just not going to happen if you just aren't really willing to put some energy. It takes some determination and some gumption. But it also says humble and not conceited, and conceited is very much that place of being completely self-referent and. And so this path of friendliness and goodwill actually demands that we not have that I-me-mind place as the absolutely central thing. You know, it really is inviting us to see ourselves as, as family, really, because that's the image that he gives us later is a mother with her child, and to meet all beings in that way that... Um, of being family, and he invites us to be contented, you know, contented and easily satisfied, and unburdened with duties. Anybody here unburdened with duties? You know, probably most of you sat here either being really tired from your burdens of duties from the day, or a little anxious about the burden of duties that you have for tomorrow. Or maybe worse yet, some of both, you know. And I don't think it actually means that you're not busy or that you don't have things to do, but he really talks about not being burdened by it. And that's a very interesting place, I think. That that is it is there a way to to hold our lives so that we're not burdened by them? It's been interesting. I've had a couple of Slow weeks um, following the death of my very old dog. And um, so I've had some days that have been pretty empty. And it's really interesting to me to see how little it takes to fill up a day, you know? And I think, oh, look, I have a whole day. And then all of a sudden it's three o'clock in the afternoon. And A lot, you know, hasn't been all that much, but it's been very, very full, it seems like. So the Buddha's really pointing at is there a way to hold our being and our lives with a kind of spaciousness? And you have to have that. He's really saying if you can't, if you don't have that sense of spaciousness, you're not even going to be able to be really aware that others exist, let alone be friendly toward them. You know, are you friendly when you're burdened? I'm not. You know, that's when I get cranky and grumpy and. Short and prickly, and all of those things that don't work so well. Um, and and then he says, you know, not to do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. And and I was thinking, as I was going over these notes, about for a long time I um, had this notion that whenever something would come up that I couldn't quite figure out what to do, I would check in with what would Mary Grace at 85 do? Now, 85's getting a little close. <laughs> so I don't know that that feels like really wise at this point. We might be referring to Mary Grace at 95. Um, but the notion is that there's a place in you that, that is wise and that is already older or is already an elder and actually does have some sense of what's needed in any given moment, and to really walk our our path in a way that that place of wisdom would not have any objection to anything that you do. And then he goes into that whole, that wonderful passage about, you know, whatever living beings there may be, and whether they are weak or strong, and then the, the really killer phrase, omitting none. You know, and that's just that one always takes my breath away. It's like, okay, you know, you can't say all beings except that one are all beings except those people, you know, in Sacramento or Washington or wherever. It really means all beings omitting none. And weak or strong, great or mighty, medium, short or small. So every one of them. And that, that... Um, And then he brings in this wonderful image of the mother, you know, of this mother, a really good mother. So maybe not like the mother that you had, or even maybe the mother that you were. Some of us have had a, a rough time being moms. But you know, the mom, a really ideal mom who protects her child, you know, who protects her child, and and so to meet all beings as though they are our children, which doesn't mean always being nice because, you know, if you're a good mom with your children, sometimes you have to set limits and create boundaries and say no, and sometimes you have to be even quite stern and ferocious and make sure that they understand that there's consequences to their actions. And so, so we're, it's, it's that kind of mom that, but that's basically wanting every good thing their child or for all beings. And then he says do it. Do it whether you're standing or sitting or walking or lying down. This is is the um, sublime abiding he says too. So then there's this place. By not holding to fixed views the pure hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And when I first came across that passage, I thought, what? You know, you go through, go through the whole sutta and it's all about following this path and having this great heart, and then there's this thing about not holding to fixed views, and not being born again into this world, and it sounds, I don't know, a little bit like Buddhist fundamentalism or something. And But then as I pondered it, I began to, you know, as is often true in these suttas, when you don't understand something, if you hang with it for a while, you begin to go, oh yeah, maybe it's talking about this. And so I think what he's pointing at is that place, where we so often go into our experience with fixed views, don't we? We know. We know who the other person is. We know what they intend. We have ideas about what they have done or are going to do. We have ideas about our own experience. We have stories about and views about what our experience ought to be. Probably every one of you came into the sitting tonight with a notion about what your sitting should be, right? Anybody not have that? And probably every one of you was a little disappointed. You didn't get the sitting that you would really have liked to have gotten. Often happens. You were sleepy, little bits of dream images floating through, the mind wandered off, planning this or that, then maybe you got sleepy again, and then maybe you were with a breath and a half, and then it all started, and kind of like that. And, you know, you made it to the end, nobody left, that's great. But it wasn't what you ordered up, and the Buddha says, having a fixed view about that, meeting that with unfriendliness, is not the place of freedom. So he's really pointing at that place where we meet everything with that sense of openness and acceptance and willingness to see it for what it is, without having a fixed view. So that's the stance of loving-kindness. And I would contend that that's also the stance of the awakened mind. That when the mind is fully awake, no matter what experience comes to you, you're able to be with it with presence and with clarity and with goodwill, trying to figure out, okay, here's this pain, this sadness, this loss, this anger, this difficulty. Whatever it is, how do I hold this and how do I p- find the place of freedom? If you're sitting there going, no, no, not this experience, I don't want this one and I don't want that one, there's no freedom in that. And you won't find the place of freedom in that. The place of freedom really is that place of meeting it, you know, that it is every experience is your teacher. Every experience is your teacher. There's no experience that you can have that does not have the capacity to teach you, that does not have the capacity to show you something about your own freedom. And when we don't... when when the mind is open like that and willing to meet whatever comes our way, even when it's our own unskillfulness, then there's a much huger chance of being able to step into a place of freedom, and he says, when the mind is that way, then that's when and he. And in the sutta, it uses the very classic Buddhist phrase: "That's when he is not born again into this world." And often. Um, you can think of that kind of a phrase as saying it's not born again into the cycle of suffering. So whether you understand the cycle of suffering to be lifetime after lifetime, that's the classic Buddhist understanding, or whether you're just noticing that when your mind has that flexibility and that openness and that sense of goodwill, you're not creating that cycle of suffering in your own life again. That's really important to see because that's where we step off that wheel where we create suffering over and over and over. So I think maybe I'm going to stop there and see if you have any questions or comments about what I've said or the sutta or... Your own favorite part. Yes, please, John. Just again about what you said about the no fixed, uh, fixed views. They, it's a tremendous difficult, for instance, uh, anti-war is a fixed view, uh, non-harming is a fixed view, all kinds of things. do all kinds of things part of the Buddhist teaching are fixed views. And it's a real hard one to get to and understand. Mm-hmm. I was just, that just struck me like it, like it struck you. It very difficult. It is very difficult, and it's it's actually interesting, you know. Anti-war, for example, it's an interesting question. The the Buddha knew a number of kings who had armies and went off to war, and he didn't seem to get too excited about it. And so does does it mean anti-all wars? I don't know, actually. Does it mean you talk about not harming, not killing, Um, but I just had the experience of having the vet come to put my dog down, you know, because she was suffering so much. So was that a bad thing, or was it a compassionate thing? And some of you might say, oh no, you know, I'm not going to come sit with her anymore. That's okay, I guess. But maybe some of you are saying, oh good, I'm glad we found a teacher who can... um, do that kind of thing. It's it's a very interesting place to look at those those places that we think are fixed and then begin to wonder. I remember having a very interesting discussion with one of my teachers with Jack Cornfield, right around the time that we began bombing in Afghanistan. So a number of years ago after, you know, nine nine eleven. And um And he was saying that the stance of absolute nonviolence is a very, very difficult and very unusual stance. That most people can't do it, or most people don't even want to do it. And it may not be even what's asked of us. So, again, you know, even if you have strong inclinations in one particular direction not harming being a being of peace then to have a mind that is open and flexible and meets with goodwill let's just say the parts of yourself that don't line up in that camp is a very interesting and I think really useful place in our practice so yes thank you for that question yeah Mike please oh, and, um, oh, John said. Thinking about the line about the um uh, the mother with boundless uh generosity. Mm-hmm. And heart. Um, so do we ex we're not excluding the medium, short, and small, small. I don't know about the people. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get included, did they? <laughs> no, they didn't. Well, I don't think that's what the Buddha is addressing. He's really... And, and my sense is, when you talk about you know, the mother with her boundless heart towards all beings, you know, I know you're a mom, I'm a mom. We've, those of us who've had children, and those of, those of you who have, haven't have, I'm sure, had enough experience, there's that place where children are sometimes downright wicked, right? They're really in trouble or they do this or do they they do that. But there's still that place in the heart that holds them with goodwill. It doesn't necessarily approve, but it holds them with goodwill. And that's what the Buddha's talking about. And it may be out of the holding them with goodwill that you're absolutely ferocious with them. You may take a really strong anti-war stance because you really feel strongly that everybody should, you know, should come that way, but you're not doing it out of hating the people that you're contending with. You're doing it out of goodwill for them. It's not, uh, so here's an image that has helped me a lot. In the world of Aikido, the notion is that when the opposing force comes towards you, you get really big and spacious and you absorb the energy of the force coming toward you so that you can move everything to a safe place, the whole system. It's not oppositional, oppositional creates all kinds of problems. So it's, it's understanding that the idea is that you want a peaceful and non-harming outcome for everyone. And this is very much in that same way of seeing things. That as something difficult comes towards you, you don't meet it with opposition, but more the heart is open. There's a lot of space. How can we all be safe in this? Then, very interesting thing to consider. Please, Karma. Mhm. You, uh, I think that I don't see it as a fixed view mm-hmm. because it's very complex. It's not just uh, you can be anti-war when you see deliberate destruction and grief of human beings that is done for personal gain of a particular country. Mm-hmm. But at war, if it's to defend the destruction of your country, it would be a different. Maybe, maybe it would be. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, like I'm talking about a second world war. I don't but the, the present destruction of human life in Afghanistan and Iraq and all that, that is purely deliberate destruction of human beings for personal gain of this country. I, th- I absolutely think that it's possible in this frame to have very strong and passionate opinions and views. And the invitation is while you have that great passion to end the war in Afghanistan, let's just say, that that you also hold all of the parties Involved with some sense of, let's say, friendliness, goodwill, wanting the best for them, and that's the challenge. And that's the challenge. It's huge. It's very huge. I think that this is not at all saying that you shouldn't passionately work for some aspect of peace or social change. But we all know. I mean, how many times have you encountered people who are you know, passionately for some, it used to happen all the time. I'll go all the way back to Vietnam because I'm old enough to go back that far, and you know, and and they would be so angry, and and there would be so much harm that would be created out of all that anger. So you know, the people who were fighting for peace were fighting for peace, and you know, it doesn't work so well that way. So this is the Buddha's really trying to point us toward is there a way to to do all of this with such openness of heart that's really interested about the end, about the, about ending suffering for all beings yeah please mary maybe one more and then we'll I just stop comment on the the metaphor that was it akito mm-hmm. as you were speaking about that it started feeling so clear it's like the lens got even clearer for me that the, practice is there it's like there's this continuum of openness <coughs> that when we are facing something that is often cons- construed or felt to be awful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whatever that awful is it's like in the Tong Lin practice the openness is we're working a, 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 a vantage point or a, a facet of that openness so you're talking about the tonglen practice of breathing in the suffering uh, open. and and staying yeah, open. Yeah, yeah, that's where yeah, I got yeah. the connection just now. It's just how yeah. how poignantly fitting these practices become. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because it is about openness. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally about openness and being willing to be present with things that are real. I mean, how often do we find ourselves? You can almost you can feel it in your body, right? Shutting down when something difficult, the, the difficult meeting, or the doctor's visit, or the dentist. Play with it at the dentist. That's a great place. you know, Because you know, you know the dentist means well, but how many of us lying there in the chair all of a sudden feel yourself, you know, go away? And you can practice just, could I soften, can I open, can I be with this experience just as it is? All right. well, that's a couple of announcements.